This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Converting scenarios to quickshock. Mole charges in Ukraine. Ian Cooper on the Quest World's SRD. And Lovecraft in Chicago. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features four original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots that bring the weird to your gaming table. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Overthrow the government. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. It's available now from Atlas Games. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The show notes you only think you remember. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut, where it is the rattle of die, the thwip of cards, and the benevolent gaze of Eric Satie coming alive, because we are talking Yellow King role-playing game again, thanks to a question from beloved Patreon backer, Jamie Twine, who asks... I've just got the Yellow King role-playing game, and I'm loving the Quick Shock system as an interesting new flavor of gumshoe. First of all, congratulations to you, Jamie Twine, for understanding how to formulate a question. With that in mind, I was wondering if you could give us some advice about converting standard gumshoe scenarios to Quick Shock. I ask because reading The Wars has left me with a strong yen to use the system to run my as-yet-unplayed copy of Soldiers of Pen and Ink. And of course, Robin, anything that gets one to run that terrific Spanish Civil War scenario for Trail of Cthulhu is a good thing. So let's see if we can help Jamie turn Trail of Cthulhu into Quick Shock of Cthulhu. Right. So if you got the uh, the PDF through the Kickstarter or or later from Pelgrane, you uh, will have a selection of uh, special PDF features. Uh, if not, get a hold uh, if you bought your copy from a store, uh, Pelgrane can still uh, hook you up with uh, PDF uh, copies through their um, a brick and uh, a mortar program. So there are already some uh, Trail of Cthulhu conversion stats for creatures and so forth. And so that'll uh, get you started along the way. Uh, the first thing that you want to do is make sure that the cards that you're using and the abilities that uh, exist in your game, the general abilities in particular, match up. So I would give the characters the general abilities from the wars, uh, even if they are playing in Soldiers in Pen and Ink, because some of the cards have, uh, particularly the cards that are uh, associated with uh, battlefield hazards, uh, like artillery barrages and so forth, some of the shock and injury cards are tied 
to particular abilities that exist in uh, the Yellow King role-playing game, uh, particularly in the war section, but don't exist in standard uh, Trail of Cthulhu, like the battlefield skill, which is your skill of not being blown to bits when you're caught in an artillery barrage or uh, when you're drowning or uh, due to a ship sinking. And and morale is an ability that only exists in a couple of the sequences in uh, Yellow King and doesn't exist in Trail. So uh, make sure the abilities uh, match up. The other thing that you could do, uh, which is more laborious, is to rewrite all of the cards so that they only relate to the abilities found in Trail of Cthulhu, but see previous phrase more laborious. Right. And also it involves you uh, doing a bunch of blank cards on the little blank card generator and having spent, that's a lot of time to spend as opposed to the relatively quick rule of thumb for swapping things out. Now that takes care of soldiers of pen and ink. Is there a more general notion? Is it that whatever you're playing, if you're playing Knights, black agents use, this is normal now, with a smattering of uh, aftermath abilities? Is it that if you're playing uh, Esoterrorists, you just play it in 1895 Paris, you big baby? What's the solution <laughs> for other gumshoe games? For Ashen Stars, my goodness. So the, the further you go away from the uh, horror genre, the further you're going off into stuff that'll require more design work, right? The creating, uh, first of all, uh, Ashen Stars doesn't have an equivalent of composure or shock cards. Uh, so that would be something that I, I would, you know, in a theoretically existent version of Ashen Stars, I would just eliminate that altogether. And injuries don't feature quite so much in Ashen Stars as they do in horror or in uh, something set on a battlefield. The guns, for example, have the non-lethal setting that phasers do in Star Trek. And so uh, that's not even necessarily a good match. So uh, let us assume for the rest of this discussion that you're doing something that's actually a good match for what Quickshock does. Right. And if you are doing that, if you're staying, for example, within the horror or the horror action uh, realm, it's pretty straightforward to uh, the the hazards are essentially the same and the, the difficulty numbers are the same. So in both games, you would be, say, rolling athletics to avoid... Uh, you know, having the uh, booby trap slice away at you. Uh, the only difference is how that is expressed afterwards in regular gumshoe. You lose health points and in quick shock, you would get an appropriately themed injury card, for example. But that um, that would just be a matter of you then looking at the different hazards and seeing uh, what obvious card comes out of them and occasionally uh, you will come across a scenario where it's, well, weirdly, you know, Robin didn't think to design this uh, particular injury, so I'll have to come up with a version of it and reskin an existing card or, or create a new card. And combat-wise, at the combat system, I think you can pull out of Quick Shock and put in uh, any other game, assuming that, of course, is what you want to do because it is quite uh, different and uh, places a different uh, level of emphasis on it. So, for Even example, that I just about did that for uh, the uh, fast combat in Vampire 5th Edition. I agree. You can. Right. Um, and, yeah. and so, for example, Fall of Delta Green is going to feel really different if you abstract out the combat and it's less about you know, the, all of the loving attention to weapons that has been infused into that uh, property throughout its its history. So uh, I am, in fact, running an extreme Fall of Delta Green variant using Quick Shock. But the whole point is to 
take that element and uh, and set it aside in favor of something uh, quite lighthearted, which is right. the total opposite of what Delta Green is usually attempting to do. Um, so uh, be aware of the, the tonal shift that will happen if combat is very fast and narratively abstract rather than something that is paying attention to, you know, what damage guns do. And there's, you know, extra lethality. Both games are lethal, but they get at it in a different process that, that has a different emotional resonance for your player. So you, you have to be aware of that. I think the easiest thing to adapt from Quick Shock, uh, which is why, for example, it shows up in the new Mutant City Blues, is taking away investigative point spends and replacing them with pushes. And uh, basically the difference is that in regular gumshoe, you choose a number of points that you associate with each investigative ability, and then you can spend them for various non-informational benefits, and it gets kind of granular. Whereas uh, in uh, Quickshock, you have two pushes, and you then can influence the storyline in various ways associated with your investigative abilities, but they're not tied to any particular ability, and it sort of evens out their use, and it, it's simpler to implement. Um, and for that reason, some groups don't uh, like it being simpler to implement. They've cut their teeth on the existing version and, and enjoy the uh, difference between, well, is this a two-point spend or three-point spend? And I would like to you know, have more spends tied to this particular ability. So simplest to implement, and I think most people tend to like it, but uh, a few uh, don't. Uh, have I left anything out? Well, I mean, you're the expert on Quickshock, so if you feel like you've covered the whole Quickshock battlefront, um, I guess the other question is, you alluded to games in which combat is sort of the point, uh, so superheroes games, uh, games of loving attention to muzzle velocity and games in which there is no shot card and barely any injury is the other sort of frontier past which quick shot is uh, suboptimal. Is there another uh, edge case? Is there are there places where you can see quick shot not obviously, as with any game, the closer you get towards dramatic interaction being the the central contention, the less you should be using a game with a procedural system anyway, in theory. Uh, and that's what drama system exists for. So right. that's on that dimension. I, I can Is see there- taking some of the principles and uh, going off in a completely different direction. So, for example, the uh, the social combat in Bubblegum Shoe could, uh, in an, a completely alternate design, be handled with... Uh, social consequence cards, I don't know what you would call them, uh, that would continue to hamper you, right? So you would get a bad right, reputation yeah. card or, mm-hmm. um, and that I think would be fun and, and interesting to play with. But it, again, it's going to require actual design work rather than just a sort of straight up adaptation. And th- the rest of the stuff, you know, the structure of a gumshoe scenario in and of itself hasn't changed. It's still got the core clues. It's still, uh, pays attention to uh, the balance between action and investigation. The uh, vast majority of the uh, the game will unfold uh, as normal. And I guess so, so ultimately my, uh, my point would be it's actually uh, pretty simple as long as you uh, pay attention to that thing up at top as to what abilities are referenced on the actual cards. You will, for uh, not every gumshoe game, breaks down the general abilities into the three categories that are mechanically affected by it. But you can 
always reverse logic your way into that. It basically uses the same abilities as appear in the very first Gumshoe games in Ezoterras and Fear Itself. Um, and you just have to look in the newer games and see how those abilities are categorized. But it's all it's all pretty straightforward, really. Yeah, because uh, obviously system in general, and here we are heading up for the uh, stratosphere of, of the general, but system in general obviously uh, dictates... Uh, what the game pays attention to, and it dictates in some senses rhythm of play, but it doesn't necessarily dictate plot structure in, in that you can run a mystery with anything. It's just that some things are are somewhat more optimized for it than not. But the, the hazy interface between what does a game system privilege and what does a game system discourage, what does a game system reward focus on, what do you think uh, quick shock rewards focus on compared to regular uh, gumshoe. Do you think that there's a specific subject or type of play that, that quick shock, uh, enables that regular gumshoe doesn't so much? Or is it just a matter of quick shock has less bookkeeping? End of story. Um, I, I would turn that on its head and say that rather than, uh, rewarding a focus, it creates a focus. And that uh, difference is that you feel the ongoing effects of bad things that have happened to you because you're thinking about the card you've got, you have uh, the effect of that card and you're looking for a way to discard it. So it is shaping. It doesn't have that moment where you're looking down the, the, the character sheet and you're saying, Oh, right. My character only has one hand. I forgot. <laughs> um, right. Because it's not abstracted with just you're missing it, uh, it, you know, you have a nebulous series of, of harms that have been done to you that have whittled down your health score, but that hasn't been defined. And so you're not, uh, you know, you look down and, oh, yeah, my, I'm almost going to run out of health, but it, I, I haven't really been thinking about that much. And, oh, I'm in trouble. Whereas this is sort of um, more of a lingering thing. So, and I guess literally the cards do reward particular behaviors that they tell you to engage in, in order to get rid of those cards. And so, uh, so yeah, right. some of them are quite story focused in that, it'll, you know, you discard this card when you go and talk to someone no one else wants to talk to, or uh, mm -hmm. you discard this card when you go to a terrible place. Um, and then others of them are more sort of uh, quotidian in that, you know, discard this if you, uh, someone else performs first aid on you at a certain difficulty level or whatever. But that also reminds you to go in and get first aid because, again, it's a typical role playing thing that you... You know, you're down to two two health points and you're staggering around, but nothing seems different or weird. Whereas in, you know, any action movie, there's a, a moment where you get patched up and you bond with the person who is uh, sewing up your stitches or whatever. It's at least acknowledged in the story that uh, something has happened and, and a change mm -hmm. of state has occurred to allow you to keep uh, going. You have to pick glass out of your feet while engaging in a bonding moment with uh, Al Pal. Yeah, exactly. Um, the... I guess the one thing I haven't really touched on is the uh, actual creatures themselves, the opponents. Uh, there's all, and uh, there are also uh, adaptations for uh, Knights, Black Agents, Vampires. There's uh, the Ezoterrorist monsters have been uh, uh, statted up already. So a lot of that is already done for you. And uh, what hasn't been done, uh, you can extrapolate. Yeah. Uh, so it's pretty easy to sort of look at a creature that has, uh, in regular gumshoe has a 24 athletics and realize that that's going to be a uh, up the challenge level or one that has a health of four, you know, that's supposed to go down in one hit. And so that's going to be a, a one of the mm -hmm. uh, weaker opponents. But it's it's all, I think, uh, pretty uh, straightforward. And I've said that 
twice and perhaps three times, which indicates that it's now time for us to slip through this commercial to see what lies on the other side. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Balapak, Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And the missing and the lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com shop. The retinal scan that you had to undergo and also the extensive background check uh, tell us that you are in the most top secret of huts, the Tradecraft Hut. And this time around, uh, Ken, there's a, a new story ripped from the headlines, and they're the headlines in Ukraine, which has just arrested a security general as an FSB asset. So uh, this sounds like exactly the sort of thing uh, that, say, for example, your Knight's Black Agents uh, character uh, might find uh, herself embroiled in. So uh, we better dig down deep and uh, find out what has uh, happened here. So, Ken, you want to get us started on this story? Yeah. The uh, general at the heart of this question is a major general who glories in the name of Valerie Shaitanov. And I swear to goodness, if you'd in, if you'd written that guy into a novel, uh, an editor would have said, Shaitanov, really? That's what you're going with? He's son of Satan? That's your, that's your story? Anyway, he was born in Russia in 1963. After the Ukrainian independence, he found himself, probably because he was stationed there, 
uh, in the Ukraine. He was put in charge of Special Operations Group Alpha, which I assume is the Ukrainian version of Spetsnaz, covert ops, uh, Devgru type unit, uh, by President Yanukovych. And we all remember that Pre- President Yanukovych was very pro-Russian. And as a result, there were protests against President Yanukovych, uh, that drove him out of power in, uh, 2014. And indeed, Shaitanov, according to uh, news reports commanded attacks on the Maidan protesters against Yanukovych and Special Operations Group Alpha. Uh, again, I assume because of a, a tie they probably felt to the Spetsnaz were a generally pro-Russian unit and or maybe they just recruited heavily from the Donbass. But uh, about a third of Alpha uh, resigned after the change of government in 2014. And also in 2014, according to the Ukrainian Security Service, the SBU, uh, according to them, that's when Shaitanov got disgusted with uh, matters Ukrainian and was recruited by the FSB in the person of Colonel Igor Yagorov, which is Igor Egerson, which again makes me think that a very lazy novelist is putting this story together. Um, this is one of Tom Clancy's lesser apprentices. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's an early start. Um, the, uh, the, the payoff was to be, according again to the, uh, SS, SBU rather, the payoff was to be $200,000 and a Russian passport, uh, which seems light, I think. I mean, if you're at a major general rank, maybe hold out for the big, for the full, uh, seven figures. Just a suggestion to future traders out there. It's often surprising in these stories, like what, what the bribery budget actually is. And uh, it turns often it turns out to, you know, betrayal happens on the cheap. Yeah. I mean, the uh, Hanson, uh, for example, I think was was bought for a few hundred thousand dollars, Robert Hanson in, in uh, the FBI. So, it yeah, it, it's uh, a lot of it, I suspect, is I mean, with this guy, Shaitanov, I suspect a lot of this was the eye coordinate of the uh, mice. Uh, money, ideology, coercion, and ego are the four reasons that someone flips. Uh, I think this guy had the eye going on because he was pro-Russian. And and the question is, to what extent did he? Can you say that he flipped? Right, because he was always pro-Russian. He was in the pro-Russian regime. Yeah. The, the mystery here is, did anyone actually think he was ever loyal to the new regime, uh, which is uh, to the new uh, government, right? Fi- yeah, the, the, the yeah. new government, which is fighting Russia. In, right uh, in the Crimea, why why did they think they they could ever trust him? Would be an interesting question. But um, so he was not just providing information, or perhaps not even primarily providing information, but he was involved in directing uh, actual uh, special ops and assassinations. Right? Yeah, that's the that's the story. I mean, they also say that he was providing identities of Ukrainian special forces who would be deployed into the uh, Donbass during the uh, Russian-Ukrainian war that is ongoing, by the way, in case anyone's curious. And so to that extent, he's very much your sort of standard military trader. He gives the plans for the offensive type stuff. Uh, and by the way, the meets would happen according uh, to the information in France, Croatia, and in Hamburg, Germany, at least. So he would go overseas uh, overseas, over borders to meet with, uh, Yigorov. Um, his code name was Bobil, and he ran another agent called Agent N or Agent H in some Western media that don't know that H is how you write N in Cyrillic. And according to the, the videotapes that they have and that they've released, he would tell Agent N to send them to the eternal hunting grounds. That was his version of terminate with extreme prejudice. So that's fun. Um, and N, 
was apparently tasked to assassinate the Chechen uh, fighter Adam Ozmaev, who fought the Russians back in the day in Chechnya and was, in fact, uh, arrested for attempting the assassination of Putin. And then for some reason, probably because his uh, father was very, very rich, got released and uh, went to the Ukraine uh, in a tearing hurry. And he was, in fact, uh, there was an assassination attempt on him in June of uh, 2017, on the 1st of June. A guy disguised as a reporter uh, pulled a gun, uh, tried to k- kill him. His wife, at that point, uh, pulled her own gun and shot the assassin uh, non-fatally, uh, except to his self-esteem, one hopes. Um, and then on uh, the 30th of October, they weren't goofing around with uh, disguised reporters. They just opened up on his car with uh, AK-47s or AK-74s, I assume, while he was driving outside Kiev. And that assassination on uh, the 30th of October of 2017 uh, killed his wife and injured him. And then uh, Shaitanov is also uh, alleged to have plotted the assassination of the interior minister, uh, Arsen Avakov, who has been interior minister since, guess when? That's right, 2014. And he has uh, been called in American media the J. Edgar Hoover of the Ukraine, um, in that he has been running the interior ministry since the changeover, and no amount of uh, of good government NGO complaints have been able to shift him, because one expects that when you take over the interior ministry, you've taken over the files of the interior ministry. Uh, so, uh, Arsen Avakov uh, is a, a, a big player, and it may have been that that tipped the scales. Uh, Western agencies, again, according to... Um, one report that I read supposedly helped take Shaitanov uh, down when he was arrested on the 14th of April of this year. So the uh, Western ag- agencies probably at least provided surveillance material and, uh, you know, uh, data tracking. Um, and then the Ukrainians did the the heavy lifting of grabbing this guy. And the, the video of him being grabbed is that they grab him and then they put a face mask on him because they're going to drag him out of coronavirus quarantine to get uh, tossed into jail. So that's that's the story, the happy story of uh, Major General Valery Shaitanov. Again, with the exception of the fact that it all reads, as you say, like Lesser Clancy, and uh, that one can trust any of these security services. Uh, and uh, certainly, uh, I would never say that about our security services, who do nothing but uh, tell the truth and. <laughs> probatious ways and are fine upstanding uh, Ohio folk. Right. Because if you're, if you're running a scenario right now, that's set uh, in the Ukraine around this intrigue, there's the whole other level of, well, the American government is now divided between elements of the executive branch, which are very clearly pro-Russian as, as a subset of being uh, pro-self and then the existing or the, the remnants now of the uh, traditional American uh the national security complex, which, you know, normally they would be uh, on, on Ukraine's side. And so there's the whole issue of uh, if you're making this into part of an adventure scenario, the protagonist doesn't even know what side the Americans are on. Well, the Americans don't even know what side they're on. And indeed, uh, Arsen Avakov is apparently one of the guys that dropped the dime on Giuliani's freelance investigations in uh, Ukraine that he told not only the American ambassador, but also enough other people to make sure that the story got up uphill. So 
whatever else Arsen Avakov is is up to with his uh, vast illegal fortune and his spying and his failure to clear out corruption. He certainly doesn't like Rudy Giuliani. So I think any you know, interior can... ministry of anything, as soon as they say Rudy coming, <laughs> it's gonna gonna uh, uh, up the uh, surveillance and uh, try and get them the heck out of the country as soon as they possibly can. But they've got to put their top translators on it because oh my god, yes. Uh, imagine translating that into Ukrainian and then trying to figure out what's going on. Yes. Um, yeah, so uh, this is rudimentarily at least entangled in uh, American domestic politics, and one assumes also. So uh, that there w- are factions within all the Western countries, because, uh, for example, Germany is still getting all of its natural gas from Russia and would still really rather not have uh, Ukraine being problem children and wanting their country back and whatnot. So one assumes that there were similar discussions at high levels in the German intelligence service, uh, which we know must have been cooperating because we have footage from the meeting in Hamburg that the uh, SBU released. So, so the Germans uh, probably had some deal and it all may come down to just, you know, which, uh, which oligarch is, is uh, you know, got their, their last payment in to uh, the, the BND or MI6 or the French or whoever it is that the Western agencies quote unquote were, or it might've just been the CIA, uh, you know, saying, well, uh, in the absence of orders, let's screw with the Russians. That's, that's <laughs> prime directive. Uh, let, let's just do that. Um, and, uh, going yeah, on. Yeah, those to, might be the orders again someday. <laughs> yeah, it could happen. And it may again be, uh, individual empire building of the sort that we see, uh, all over this story because, um, you don't have to get national clearance to order surveillance on somebody necessarily or to help someone out informally across the wire. It's all part of the generalized um, make other intelligence agencies owe you something, uh, do a favor to get a favor. And in that currency, uh, America has huge piles of chips. We can't play poker very well, but we are rich as heck, just like in Casino Royale. And so we have you know, all of the NSA intercepts, we have all the keyhole satellite stuff, we have uh, whatever other weird uh, backdoor magics have been inserted into people's uh, uh, phone uh, apps by uh, the, the good children at Apple. Um, so we have lots and lots of, of chits uh, to cash in if we want to. And if this was us doing it, it might have just been CIA station chief Germany doing it and saying, ah, they're probably fine with it at Langley, as opposed to phoning up the National Security Council and waiting for the uh, extraordinarily long uh, hold music to finish, I guess. Yes. Um, so <laughs> this strikes me as a story that, in fact, would be simplified with the addition of vampires. Yeah. So <laughs> how do how do we uh, uh, build this into a, a Knights Black Agent scenario? Well, at the at the core of this, we have two things. We have this guy Adam Ozmaev, who has been the the target of assassination twice. He is clearly who the MacGuffin, who the story is focusing on. And then in the background, we have this shadowy uh, figure, Arsen Avakov. And then we have, of course, uh, the fact that he's um, uh, the son of Satan uh, who orders people sent to eternal hunting grounds and does assassinations on magically significant days. So that's another thing that we can just keep our our uh, our, our powder dry on. But it's it's obviously what is Adam Ozmaev? Is Adam Ozmaev? Uh, in league with the vamp, with the vampire conspiracy is Shaitanov part of the, 
uh, anti-vampire anti units in Russia, the survivors of the special expedition? Or is he a guy who has information about the conspiracy that he picked up while he was in Russia, uh, perhaps when he was in Chechnya fighting um, the FSB uh, internal uh, police there? Did he stumble on some uh, degree of, of problem? Or, or is it that his father, who is, as I mentioned, a very rich fellow in um, Abkhazia, uh, did he wind up uh, stumbling on the conspiracy's financial tendrils? And then Ozmaev has that information, and that's why the conspiracy is trying to wipe him out. And that also, that degree of special knowledge might have been how he got out of a Russian prison after alleging uh, that he was going to assassinate Putin. Uh, that's that's the sort of background detail that I think would make any GM's eye flicker upward, right? Right. Uh, well, I think uh, we've we've turned real life into a game scenario once more, uh, which is our game. Uh, we can declare victory and uh, uh, see what... Uh, I, I think this next segment might send us tumbling backwards in time to a, a different time. Ken, a, a time when people went to places together to talk about games. Goodness. The Best of Asphagel is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Give yourself a mastery in keeping podcasts alive by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Chris McCarthy. Jonathan Donald. Louis Sylvester. Michael Manival. And Phil Bailey. Hey, everybody. It's once again time for a segment of Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And this time it's Robin in the wilds of the Schloss Neuhausen in Brandenburg, Germany at the Kraken. And I'm talking to Ian Cooper, who is the line editor of HeroQuest for Chaosium. So Ian, thank you for joining us on this uh, fine, crisp autumn day in Germany. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you are the uh, line editor of HeroQuest, uh, and I've heard of this game, uh, but for the benefit of uh, listeners, uh, what is HeroQuest and what is its uh, long and tangled publication history? So, um, HeroQuest is a game written by Robin Laws, someone you may have heard of. Uh, it seems vaguely familiar. Yeah, and uh, that was the published uh, probably about 2000, was that, I think, by uh, Greg Stafford uh, from Isseries as the new Galanthian game that came out. 
at the beginning of the 21st century and was uh, seen as a way of trying to play the stories that Greg had written in much of his unpublished work. And it was quite a departure for fans of Grantha. It was a much more storytelling game style. Uh, and it was one of the kind of early works celebrated at the Forge and helped kicked off a lot of the, the kind of indie uh, storytelling game revolution. Uh, later on, we created a new version of it, which was rebadged as HeroQuest, which was the kind of one of the key activities. And in some ways was trying to pick up on the, the RuneQuest name, the, pre, the, you know, the, the, the prior game that people had been focused on for Garantha. Uh, it was very popular. Uh, a number of people created um, game settings in HeroQuest for, for non-Grantham settings. Most famously, probably uh, Mark uh, Galliotti produced one called Mythic Russia. And so then in the new edition, we went for a, there was a generic version of HeroQuest, um, which which you wrote, came back into the fold, fixed a few of the things that had popped up over the years as people tried to get to grips with how to play what for them was quite a different sort of game. Um, when we created a, a version called HeroQuest. Now, interestingly enough, originally proposed was to call this generic version of the game Quest Worlds, as I'm sure you remember, because I have a manuscript that bears your name with that with that working title on it. But it was decided that might be too confusing for people, and we would stick with the brand that we had. And then, coming kind of full circle, there was then a version when um, uh, called HeroQuest Glorantha, which picked up basically the um, Glorantham content uh, again. And now with the various machinations of companies folding into each other, Chaosium essentially now owns the HeroQuest line. Right, whereas the later ones were done by Moon Design, uh, which at that time was a relatively low uh, profile company that was keeping the flame of Glorantha alive. Right, exactly, yeah. And uh, in uh, the intervening time, there's been a a Chaosium resurgence. And those who have been fans of Chaosium know that there have been other attempted resurgences over the years, but this one is real. It's really happening, uh, yeah, yeah. and uh, things are uh, going swimmingly. And it turns out there's still a large international audience looking for uh, all things Glorenthan. And uh, the Quest World's name also has a an older resonance for Chaosium fans. So maybe you could describe that a bit. Right. So there was uh, because. Uh People wanted to write material for a RuneQuest, but it was a huge bottleneck pushing Glorantham information through Greg. Uh, they came up with more, more of an open setting they were going to call Quest World. So they, they, they created a new world. I think there's like seven continents. Uh, publishers got their own continent. Here is your continent, and you can write RuneQuest material in that continent without worrying about having to go through the, the Glorantham Canon Police. Um, uh, and so that was a name for a much more open world setting that Chaosium wanted to create. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we quite liked the name is because it was implying it's Chaosium involving themselves in a much more open creative environment. So that brings us to the present day. Mm-hmm. Uh, HeroQuest is now uh, under the uh, aegis of a, a blossoming, re-blossoming Chaosium and you're in charge of it. So uh, what is on the docket? for uh, this game now? So the first thing is basically to issue a new core book based on the HeroQuest core book, so the non-Glorantham version, um, which will be essentially a new generic version of the game. And it's a slightly cleaned up text with quite a lot of play advice from what we've learned from trying to teach people how to play the game over the years. And whereas the first game had a genre, explained how to build genre packs, which are really the, the way you build um, the keywords, etc., you need to play in a given genre with a game. We'll have some extra examples in this one. We didn't have examples last time. But one key part of it is we want to expand the scope 
uh, a lot. So we are going to basically issue a system, system reference document and an open license so that anyone can take the Quest World engine and create their own games from it. Um, we see that as a key way of just growing the number of people that understand how to use and play this engine, which grows our overall market for everybody. And then when we have a game like HeroQuest Garantha um, as Chaosium, we will hopefully have a bigger audience to sell that game to. And uh, for those uh, wondering, I've wanted for years for there to be an open license for this uh, mm. rule set, uh, which I think does a great uh, job, if I do say so myself, of uh, taking an emulative approach that you can use in any genre. So I was, uh, and I think uh, even more than ever, getting uptake on a set of mechanics uh, depends on people being able to play with it and adopt it. And the idea of there being proprietary mechanics, you just lock it down and prevent people from messing with it. And if you see, for example, the success of Powered by the Apocalypse, which is mm -hmm. another approach to uh, uh, storytelling that can stretch across genres, you've seen uh, that that has sort of become the lingua franca for a particular community of gamers. Right, and realistically, you know, Chaosium is not going to produce a Questworld game for every possible genre and setting. It just simply doesn't there are not enough people and time and resources to do that. And if you want to expand the scope of the game, it's very helpful for other people to be able to do that for you and work with you. And you know, I mean, Custom in, in the past did do some licensing of the HeroQuest engine, but it just it get there is additional complexity. There's having to agree licensing. What are reasonable terms? And actually, this is just a simpler model. In most cases, really, you wanted to give somebody the ability to use the game, and your major licensing concern was, are they going to do something horrible with it that I that, that will bring the band into disrepute? Right? right. So you might just really give it away and say, people do as you will with it. Right, and then you have less responsibility when yeah. someone does the horrible thing. So you mentioned before that there are going to be uh, more developed genre packs for the new version, and I mm -hmm. understand there's some cool people doing some of those, so can you spill the beans on I on can, yeah. So, the, I mean, there'll be three. So first of all, um, we're, we're kind of going full circle in that we've got Ron Edwards, who is one of the luminaries at the Forge, um, and he was an early champion of Hero Wars as uh, part of this new kind of indie game design movement. He's going to be doing a genre pack for us. And, and being Ron, uh, he, he wants his game to do supers for us. But rather than being something that more directly competes with the work he does in other things like Champions, he's going to pick up on, he has a strong interest in what he calls Cosmic Zap, which is the slightly crazy 1970s Jack Kirby. Um, and he sees the, the Quest Wars engine as being an ideal well to, way to play that, particularly um, where you have characters who exist like, you know, Galactus on a um, uh, global, uh, on a universal kind of scale, and then characters who are essentially are just the girl who is the waitress in the local coffee shop. Uh, both of them under the Quest Watch engine can, kind of, of course, exist in the same uh, engine. So it's the ability to do that he, he really wants to showcase. We have um, a guy called uh, Dave Robinson who has written a series of pulp uh, novels which are a kind of modern take on uh, Doc Savage called Doc Vandal. Uh, you can find his kind of books on Amazon and he's going to do a pop setting for us and we, we, we like that because we think actually as an engine it, it, it delivers very nicely on pop settings um, uh, and then the other one we have in the works is Sean Hillman working on a 
transhumanist space-ish setting called Afterthought. One of our things we're looking at there is playing around with the idea that there is it's a science fiction setting without um, faster than light travel, so only slower than light travel, but with still being an interstellar rather than just in one solar system. So you literally will do things like set out on your journey and arrive 10 years later, uh, not knowing quite what may have changed at your destination in, in the time that you were in, in sleeping on the way. So those are the three that we're looking at. So I, my expectation at the minute is that we will bring out the core book and shortly afterwards Doc Vandal because being that kind of pulp, it covers quite a lot of bases in terms of genres. It's a bit of magic, a bit of, bit of super tech, etc. Then probably come out with Ron, showing you a quite different way of using the material to encourage people to look at um, quite different ways of using the engine, and then probably come out with Sean's after that. So these are standalone products, not part of the core book. So in, in most of those cases, what will happen is that we we will probably not reprint the rules on each of them. We will assume you're going to get the core book. But that's, it's an alternative for people to say, I'm going to produce a standalone product. I'm going to produce the rules because they're in the SRD along with my IP, my setting material, etc., my keywords. Or I'm going to just be standalone and rely on the fact that you've probably already got the core book and you're just going to get a smaller supplement that has just the setting, the keywords that you need to play, etc. Now, there are two approaches to SRDs. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them uh, famously was the uh, the D&D version, which itself is just a document that is a whole full playable version of the game, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, to uh, reveal something that we all suspect uh, Hasbro lawyers have since come to regret. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have, uh, for example, the way we do the Gumshoe SRD is it provides you all of the elements of a gumshoe game and you choose which ones you use and it's more of a reference designer uh, document for designers but it's not just a playable free version of generic gumshoe um, so uh, is uh, hero quest closer to one of those than the others so it's close to the second one um, so uh, it essentially contains the rules text there are few examples in there only there is no real advice on how to play the system etc so um if you if you knew how to play a hero quest you could use it as a piece of reference material at your table but it certainly wouldn't be a, a useful document to teach the game to somebody and the other thing we're doing is there, there have been different ways of uh doing some parts of the engine over time so a particular one is there is there's, a, there's a, what we call a simple contest which is the quick one roll mechanic and then there are various forms of what we might call a long contest where there is divided into a sequence of roles so you can think of them a little bit as conflict resolution versus task resolution maybe as a, as a model and what we've done there is say well there used to be a system called an extended contest which involved bidding a number of action points each turn you, the more you bid the riskier action and the more the, the bigger right. rewards you could get and that's more focused on the big swings of up and down beats right. that you would have in in a fight scene for example. exactly and then there's the scored contest which is kind of first to five model um and both of them have value uh, but we're going to put them both in but we wouldn't imagine you'd run a game using two competing uh, long contest systems you're going to pick one that works for you so for example i might recommend that the extended contest mechanic would be really great for supers those big swingy kind of fight sequences but if you want something a bit more gritty then probably the the, the score contest notation is going to be better for you and so it's a toolkit where we assume designers will take parts of the rules that they want to use for their game and figure out which ones work rather than necessarily buying the whole thing and as you know I feel like I'm you know, telling the designer of the game <laughs> you're, you're telling <laughs> how, the listeners how, how your game works yeah. um, 
you know, you can use it at quite a simple level, which is supposed D20 rules. And then there are layers on top of that, right? Where you say, hey, I can figure out actually from the distance between the different types of results you got, how qualitatively good your advantage is, or how, how qualitatively bad your disadvantage is, right? That's a layer. You could write a very simple version that tried to omit those layers. We've occasionally talked about saying, you could easily write a kid's game version that really just had the, the opposed D20 and, and scrubbed a whole load of the more complicated mechanics because the kids wouldn't really need them. So, so as a designer, it's a toolkit to pull out the bits you want, much more like gumshoe. Uh, so uh, you know which ones you're uh, committed to and, and going to publish, mm. and uh, perhaps already you've received a pitch or two. Mm. But uh, for our listeners, are there uh, if someone is listening who wants to finally uh, do a uh, Hero Quest or Quest Worlds uh, based game, is there a uh, genre or uh, premise that you know you're not going to get too soon that you would love to see somebody else do? Yeah, I think uh, the one that I would think people should look at a little bit would be around the kind of, it's got a name now, but the, the kind of fantastic fiction of the kind of 1890s, the Jules Verne, H.G. Wells style stuff. I think that, that the, there have been various attempts at games in that kind of area, um, but I think actually you could write some really good uh, Quest Worlds games, particularly around sort of public domain material in, in that area, and it's a very valuable uh, area to be, to be digging into. Um, and we, I don't think we have anything lined up really immediately in that, in that space. Um, and you mentioned that over the years we've uh, found uh, a greater need for uh, GM and player advice. The thing about HeroQuest is that uh, it uh, works to emulate the structure and feeling of uh, narrative and is sufficiently abstract that you can apply it to anything. And I guess the, uh, the core uh, mechanical idea for me was that every ability is mechanically equally to, right. equal to every other ability so that uh, the uh, character who is uh, a skilled negotiator is as important in the narrative as the one who's a skilled puncher. Uh, and the way that is reflected is you can have the climactic extended uh, sequence at the end of a session be a negotiation that has the same ups and downs and complexity as a fight would, uh, as it does still in this system or indeed in, in any other system. Um, and uh, one of the challenges that I first found when I released the first version called Hero Wars is that at that time I was assuming that since people are absolutely steeped in narrative all the time from all the, n never in history have we had more stories come our way, uh, that uh, people kind of knew when I, when I said, well, okay, make sure you just do the interesting thing. But the question of what is interesting uh, turns out to be enormously fraught and that people don't uh, break stories down the way that I instinctively do, and this is where Hamlet's hit points came in, and that turned into being the story. So, uh, how uh, over the years, what sort of uh, forms of advice uh, to uh, GMs and players have you found yourself adding in even now for this new edition that that weren't there before? So, I think I think one of the key points is, to me is that some traditional role-playing games have a very structured format, which even video games borrowed almost in the kind of, you know, build up towards the encounter with the big bad and a set of fights, etc. And that um, there's in, instinctively sometimes, I think, in as, as GMs, we look to the way other role-playing games work for how we should structure something. And what I would say is, don't look to that, look to the way a movie basically quite often is structured as a much more of a guide. And that's, as you say, Hamlet's hit points, the pass-fail cycle, which you introduce as a way of 
trying to get people to predict what kind of um, uh, difficulty of encounter they need to provide next is a much much better model. So I'd say think about you know think about the, the, how, how a movie works is really a good way of getting a feel for what your your scenario needs to do. And think about when you want to switch between simple and long contests is would this be a scene where the director is you know bringing out the big guns this is the big speech sequence and the actors get to strut their stuff and we all go wow what an incredible speech that guy gave or what an amazing action sequence or is this basically a, a point to get towards that in which case it's a simple contest right and some movies only have one of those big sequences right I mean but the thing that mentioned earlier you talked about one of the things I, I do love about the system is that you can do something like um, A Few Good Men and have your final scene with you know Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson delivering their speeches as the climactic moment of the game, which is something you don't really get to do with a lot of other role-playing games. And that ability to have that kind of conflict, I think, is, is critical to understanding how the game really, really flies. Now, probably still at this point, the majority of people who have played HeroQuest have played it in Glorantha, mm -hmm. and there have been uh, HeroQuest Glorantha products uh, still. Are there more in the pipeline? I know it's certainly the overall shift is to have Glorantha be a, a RuneQuest property. So we certainly have some um, products in development. Uh, Time-wise, we are focused on Questworld initially to try and grow the audience again for the game. And that, for now, is taking a lot of the creative energy and focus. But I would hope in the next year or two to get some more HeroQuest products out. We, we got out a recently, um, we had a celebration of um, Greg Stafford on We Are Last Day and there was a new HeroQuest adventure came out from that and we would probably hope to get a few more products out that way. Um, the, uh, there's a thing called the Johnstown Compendium which is uh, much like the Miskatonic Repository from Chaosium. It's a way of fans being able to produce material and sell it through Chaosium using their IP without any role licensing issues and certainly talking to a few people I expect we'd also see quite a lot of HeroQuest uh, adventures and material coming out through that direction uh, for people. But yeah, I, I guess watch this space. I mean, I've been playtesting some stuff around the Dragon Rise, um, kind of taking the campaign that we produced in the Eleven Lights to the next step up towards the edge of the Rebellion and meeting where the RuneQuest game uh, starts. And we would probably think about that being sort of a one book we want to bring out in that line uh, in, the, in the next year or so. And uh, I guess we should end with the big secret. Uh, for HeroQuest uh, GMs and players, which is that the game was uh, designed from the beginning so that you could take it and apply its mechanics to any piece of text mm -hmm. so that actually all of these RuneQuest uh, books, including the ones that I'm working on now that uh, Chaosium is paying for, are really still secretly, as long as you ignore all those weird numbers that appear, mm -hmm. are still all HeroQuest books. Right, yeah. Essentially the idea is you can, you know, I always say, provided you and everybody around the table understand a genre, you get the only book you need is the core book, right? You only need additional books if some of you don't understand the genre and I need some information to exchange to give you that. But it could be any piece of, any, any format to exchange that information would actually do. Um, you know, I've seen people talking recently about you could take a children's textbook on the Mongols and decide that that is your, the book you're going to use to drive your, your, your Quest Wars game, right? That would work perfectly fine. It would do splendid there because often those books are all about, you know, daily life and what each individual person's role in a culture is. And those are, those are your keywords right there. Yeah, right. Uh, well, thank you so much uh, for uh, stopping by uh, to chat. Great. Thanks very much.
are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bupkis. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that, Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilizations separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome death. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. It's time once more to hear the whirring of chronotons, to hear the clacking of time gears, because we are standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and, yes, even mutilate it. And because our beloved Patreon backers are uh, often steeped in Lovecraftian lore, uh, we have previously, uh, uh, Ken, been asked to have you interfere with uh, the life of H.P. Lovecraft. And beloved Patreon backer Sam Harris is here to do it again as follows. How would you convince H.P. Lovecraft to move to Chicago and take on the editorship of Weird Tales in 1924? What would the effects, good and bad, on Lovecraft's life and work on Weird Tales in the genre and on the fair city of Chicago? Well, you couldn't entice him uh, with a visit uh, with Virgil, uh, because Virgil is not in 1924. Well, I could bring Virgil. It's not that hard. Um, he's He doesn't take up that much space in the Right, we don't want to leave him in, in the offices of no, Weird Tales in 1924. No, I don't want to leave him in 1924, but it would be a... It's a way of uh, manifesting my bona fides. But uh, to, to back up briefly, as we often do on the Time Machine segment, let's talk about the story. And the story is that in 1924, under the leadership of Edwin Baird, uh, Weird Tales had discovered... H.P. Lovecraft, and despite the fact that Lovecraft submitted five stories at once, all handwritten, which is possibly the worst way, even in 1923, to submit stories, uh, Edwin Baird noticed a something-something about that guy, published, I believe, all of them, and uh, made H.P. Lovecraft sort of one of his star writers. And uh, Hannenberger also apparently was part of the uh, uh, amateur uh, press movement, Was had his thumb in that uh, pie and also recognized Lovecraft as a great talent uh, in that area, and so was very impressed by his literary uh, critical skills. And in uh, mid March of 1924, according to a Hennenberger memoir or report that I have not read, and I don't even know where it is, but uh, most immediately relevantly, according to a letter that H.P. Lovecraft wrote to Frank Belknap Long on March 21st, 1924, uh, at some point in March, as uh, the magazine was collapsing in debt, it had been capitalized uh, with $11,000 in 1922 or 23. And by uh, March of 1924, uh, he was $40,000 in debt over it. Uh, it had managed to lose $52,000 in a little over a year. So just like a magazine, you'd say. <laughs> 
Yeah, he may have been in the publishing industry. Right. So Hennenberger is, uh, he fires Baird, uh, first of all. Uh, Baird moves laterally to uh, the magazine uh, Detective Stories, which Baird basically sells uh, to cover up uh, some of his debt. He's still got about $40,000 in debt remaining, most of that to his printer of the Cornelius Printing Company in Indianapolis, Indiana. Hennenberger takes Weird Tales and he makes it the asset of something called Popular Fiction Publishing, which is a co-op or a partnership between the business manager of Weird Tales, William Springer, and according to Joshi's research, a guy named B. Cornelius. But when you dig into it, of course, there's no one named B. Cornelius. Uh, the company is run by George H. Cornelius, according to their statement of ownership. And uh, his father, uh, George M. Cornelius, who founded the company, had put George H. in charge. However, George H. married Beulah Stockdale in 1920, so it's barely possible that this research is not entirely unsound and that uh, Cornelius might have put the ownership in his wife's name at first. But by 1925, uh, the statement of ownership in Weird Tales magazine says that it's owned uh, by the Cornelius brothers, by William Springer, and by uh, Farnsworth Wright, who is the eventual editor of uh, Weird Tales hired in fall of 1924, because Lovecraft, and I will uh, can do no better than to quote Lovecraft on this topic, uh, doesn't want to move to Chicago. He says... He says, not the best city in world. <laughs> no, he says that. He says, a thunderbolt comes out of Weird Tales' office and lands me in ugly, modern, crassly repellent Chicago. Damn the possibility. <laughs> Chicago in all caps, even. And uh, he continues to say that Hennenberger, the honest but uncouth uh, worthy Henny, writes that he is making a radical change in the policy of Weird Tales and that he has in mind a brand new magazine to cover the field of Pomac and Shutters. This magazine, he says, will be right in my line and he wants to know if I would consider moving to Chicago to edit. Oh God, oh Montreal. <laughs> it may be a fliver, but your grandma is, or, and his grandma uh, in, in the uh, Lovecraft slang would be his brand new wife, Sonia, is urging me to take it up if it definitely materializes and is accompanied by the requisite guarantees. This I can hardly contemplate without a shiver. Think of the tragedy of such a move for an aged antiquarian just settled down in enjoyment of the reliques of re venerable New Amsterdam. Uh, Sonia wouldn't mind living in Chicago at all, but it is colonial atmosphere which supplies my very breath of life. I would not consider such a move, big though the proposition would be if genuine, without previously exhausting every sort of rhetoric in an effort to persuade Hennenberger to let me edit at long distance. One trouble is that the damn thing might fail after a few issues, leaving me stranded in uncongenial Western scenes. Well, he's he's not wrong there. That's, that's always yes. a... That is always a, a problem. And you're relocating for creative work. Yes. And now, before people come around to bust my chops for H.P. Lovecraft saying all those harsh, hurtful things about the greatest city <laughs> in the world, this is literally the same letter in which he describes the residents of the Lower East Side as semi-pithecanthroid adumbrations. So, uh, be, be very careful, because when you pick up the Lovecraft rhetoric dagger to stab, it has an edge that stabs you. Uh, that said, 
Uh, as you can tell, Lovecraft, not a big fan of the greatest city in the world, uh, didn't want to move there despite uh, the presence of uh, Weird Tales magazine. Um, and indeed, it was uh, uh, Hannenberger uh, visited New York a couple of times to try and talk Lovecraft into it. Lovecraft's like, no, I'm not doing it. Only if I can work remotely. Hannenberger apparently says, well, I'll do a new magazine that will just be for you and you can edit it in New York. And it'll be called Ghost Stories, and we'll set it up, and the money's coming, don't worry. And so for uh, the period from June to about September, Lovecraft believes that he's going to be editing a different magazine. And then, of course, uh, anyone who's ever been a writer recognizes this. Oh, there was no money. It never happened. And uh, Hennenberger, uh, having gotten Lovecraft to do a lot of, uh, pro, uh, of gratis work on the basis of money that eventually comes, pays him off in book gift certificates. Oh. <laughs> Freelancer's life. <laughs> exactly. So Lovecraft basically takes the $70 in book gift certificates, which is closer to $700 in uh, today's money, and it blows it all in a giant shopping spree with Frank Belknap Long, no doubt to the joy of his wife. And uh, if, if yeah, one that, wonders... That's not a parable you can relate to, is it, Ken? Right. Not at all. So if one wonders why, despite his uh, bad attitudes about foreigners and Jewish people and the great city of Chicago, I still uh, love and admire H.P. Lovecraft. There you have it. He takes his year's pay and blows it on book spree. So good for you, H.P. But the upshot is no Ghost Stories magazine, no Lovecraft at the helm of Weird Tales, and no Lovecraft moved to Chicago. And because we do not premise reject uh, unless we have to at uh, Ken's Time Machine, uh, you know, we uh, adapt, adopt, and overcome, just like the SAS. We look into this, and I think that the way to get it to work is basically provide that guarantee, make sure that the money's there and making money with a time machine is child's play. Even, even I could do it. And so it's a matter of, yeah, as long as you don't a, use that time machine to set up a magazine, you're good. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I turned the, the big fortune into the small fortune <laughs> by nothing but the action of print. So it's a matter of at the moment that Hennenberger is $40,000 in debt, becoming a silent partner with him and saying, uh, you don't get this money unless Lovecraft moves to Chicago. You inform not Lovecraft, but Sonia that uh, the money is going to be there, that it's guaranteed. And <laughs> this is why you've you... been tapped for this mission, Ken. <laughs> yes. And then Sonia gets Lovecraft to move to Chicago, uh, crying and caterwauling and multisyllabizing all the way. Yeah. If you're going to call and me grandma, we're moving to Chicago. We're moving to Chicago. That's for you. So uh, there they are in Chicago. Uh, probably there has to be some sort of dickering around with Marshall Field so that Sonia can also get a job as the as the millinery buyer for a, a, a good Chicago department store. So uh, I expect that's in the offing as well so that she can have a job at, at the very least to get out of the house when Lovecraft is whining about the fact that he's seeing nothing but uh, prairie style architecture on his walk to work. And, and then we have the question of how does Lovecraft like Chicago? Does he discover that it's wonderful? No, of course he doesn't. It's cold. He hates the cold. He's going to be so mad and miserable for five months out of the year. It's not even going to be, well, it'll be hilarious, but it's not going to be pleasant. He might be um, better and, fed though. Well, under Sonia's care, he already ballooned from 140 pounds to nearly 200. So with Sonia plus uh, melted cheese, oh, oh yes. Um, uh, the other big change, I think, is that he gets to physically meet August Derleth 
and Robert Block, who are just uh, in Wisconsin. And, and it's an easy drop down. He's got his friend Alfred Galpin is at Sh- uh, University of Chicago. Fritz Leiber, uh, if he sticks it out that long, uh, Fritz Leiber's in Chicago. So he'll physically be able to meet more of his uh, contemporaries, even though one expects he'll be hopping on the Illinois Central and hot footing it down south just as often as he can get away from weird tales. And then the question is, does Lovecraft have at his core the willingness to publish garbage that will be necessary to keep a magazine just functioning at all? And I think you can make two arguments. You can make the sort of Lovecraft as uh, air, head in the clouds esthete. Uh, he, he's he's never going to publish Nixon Dialhis. He's n- never going to... Um, uh, and he, of course, is on record as not liking Margaret Brundage's covers and thinking that they're uh, indecorous, which they are. Um, and uh, and so is is his sort of weird uh, aesthetic going to interfere with the operation of a pulp magazine? And this is where, if one wants to keep things going, first of all, William Springer is still in the mix. He's the business manager. He's still got the controlling interest. So he's going to be saying, no, we have to run a cover with a lady on it, Howard. Uh, you're not in charge of the covers. I'm in charge of the covers. Uh, the other thing is that Farnsworth Wright, who would become editor in Lovecraft's absence, is still there as a fiction reader. And Farnsworth's Wright taste is the sort of broadly Catholic uh, reading taste that Weird Tales in, a, in actual history, not the legend, uh, fell to. Lovecraft certainly is going to print more of Clark Ashton Smith. He recognized uh, the value to readers of Seabury Quinn. He did not think that Quinn was uh, a, a unforgivable hack. He thought he was a hack, but he recognized that for the stuff that he was writing, he, he had good imagination and, and got to the end of the story well. So he's not going to just rule out n- nothing. And he does say in so many words in a letter to Hennenberger that he understands that getting a magazine out at all with even literate stuff in it is is a triumph. So he at least intellectually understands you can't, uh, let your, uh, your, your aesthetic get in the way of, of putting a magazine out. And against that, he has amazing story sense. He's super good with other writers. We know that from his own correspondence. So he would have been great, uh, in terms of that editor that develops you into a good writer as you write in. And his notion to, to Hennenberger in a letter is that weird tales should have on staff a bunch of basically sort of sub Lovecraft guys who could, if something comes in with a good idea, turn it into a good story. And then you'd split the money with uh, the writer and the and the reviser, and that would be the way to prevent the 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 level of of writing from getting too low. As you basically just hire people to regularly produce uh, uh, revised uh, stories to to bring the level up. And that I don't know if that's financially sound. I'm sure it's not, but it is at least. A, a possible way, and it shows that he was thinking seriously about the editing job. It's, it's almost like a James Patterson-style studio for weird fiction. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's the sort of thing that, again, a lot has to break correctly for it to work, but I think it could possibly have uh, functioned correctly. And the fact is that he would be getting a paycheck for the first time ever in his life, and he would be doing work that he was actually good at, which is to say, reading a bunch of horror and trying to figure out what's good in it. And he was terrific at that. That was, that's a, that's a great skill. Now, the question of course is, is he so busy running weird tales that his own writing takes a tumble? If we move him in 1924, we're losing the entire Cthulhu mythos. We're losing call of Cthulhu. We're losing uh whisper in darkness. We're losing dreams of the witch house. We're losing uh mountains of madness. We're losing a lot of stuff. 
So the thing I guess to do is as a time machine haver is to make very, very sure that if Lovecraft is starting to write other things that are inspired by Chicago or by personal conversations with Derleth and Block and people like that, that uh, those are there. And then every so often, if you've gone a couple of years without Call of Cthulhu appearing, you submit it under another name. <laughs> you say, hey, H.P. Lovecraft, this guy, Kenneth A. Height uh, in Providence has written a heck of a story. And uh, here you go. What do you think? And then Lovecraft, of course, would have all kinds of problems with it because that was Lovecraft's re reaction to his own work. But uh, the story might get into weird tales. And so you'd still have you could maintain if you wanted uh, the literary effects of Lovecraft uh, while still having him have the benevolent uh, beneficent effects that he would have on American horror. And in a position where he's able to provide not just encouragement, but paychecks and print opportunities. And in a world in which someone has capitalized weird tales so they could publish um, uh, best ofs. Uh, they published one best of, but it was the best of the first year of Word Tales, which was all garbage. And so it, 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 you can still see it decades later. They're saying, Hey, for the low price of 50 cents, you can take this dog off our hands, get it out of the warehouse. We're so desperate. Um, but you could have we you, printed you could have a lot had, to bring down the unit cost. You you, you could have had um uh you know uh horror anthologies in America really begin with Creeps by Night uh when Dashiell Hammett does uh, at the very tail end of the 30s. You start doing that in the in the mid 20s. You 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 alter the American literary uh, uh landscape because again we are not yet marginalizing by genre in the way that will happen after the war with people like uh, Edmund Wilson on the battlements to to keep uh. Uh, grubby old genre writers out of the academy. Uh, well, this uh, this seems like an exciting new vista. And uh, since you figured out, uh, you know, way around uh, the possible obliteration of the Cthulhu mythos, I think this might be uh, something Time Incorporated might actually ask you to do. It could happen. <laughs> Assuming Lovecraft doesn't just freeze to death in, in Chicago in January 1925. Well, there, there is that. So, well, uh, if, uh, listeners, you don't wake up one morning and see a whole additional shelf full of weird tales anthologies in, in your library, you'll know that uh, Ken uh, did this and then had to undo it. And on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, head on out of this uh, podcast. Uh, but with our own uh, very own time machine, we'll be back a week from now with more similar nonsense. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pugrain Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Prevent this podcast from taking a final shock card by joining such stalwart Patreon backers as... James Candelino. Lee Candelino. Andrew Laliberti. Anders. Moline and Ben Brigoff. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Snag a design for the times like okay okay I carved the yellow sign into one lousy potato. On Twitter he's at Kenneth Height and he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. <laughs>